Y'all, welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin, the show where I invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. Today, it's a return guest for Women's History Month, and that is Renee Rodriguez, who is a custody coach. As you remember, Renee was on an episode earlier, um, and I will link it in the show notes if you want to go back and listen. But this one, she gets more in depth about what women need to do when they're going through custody, um, especially if they're dealing with someone who's in a narcissistic um a narcissistic personality and it's she it's a really great conversation she does get teared up because she, she knows what she speaks because she was in this type of relationship as well so i really hope you enjoyed this chat and you know what i need you to do right now that's right start listening Welcome back to another edition of Chats from the Blog Cabin. This month of March, we're going every single solitary day live with somebody who is amazing. And before I introduce you to Renee, who is actually a repeat, I don't want to say repeat offender, but a repeat uh, guest on the show, I want to introduce a quote. And I actually think that this kind of goes with what we're going to talk about and what you stand up for. So it's a Maya Angelou quote. It says, each time a woman stands up for herself, she stands up for all women. And don't you think that kind of goes with what our talk is all about, Renee? Yeah, very much so. I think so. Um, I want to start real quick by saying that that kind of applies to, I love your intro. It's so connected. It's so, you know, you see the strength of women there as well. So that's kind of awesome to watch. Yeah, what we, what I have to talk about, what I do is, um, really supporting women in the in the courtroom when they're in a custody battle. Yeah, that is so true. And one of the reasons why I wanted you to come back on is because women are more and more now are faced with divorce and faced with having to deal with the custody issues of, you know, who gets what, the best interest of your kids. And they don't really know what to do. And it gets very emotional. Divorce gets very, very emotional. It gets really emotional. It's... Um, it's, I would think, the most emotional battle that I see women go through. It's not something that they're expecting to happen, of course, right? Um, you know, you marry somebody. What I like to tell my moms, you know, when they're wondering how they got to this place is um, the person you married is not the person you left. Mm -hmm. So it's not about blaming yourself. Um, you left at the right time. You did the right thing. But it, once children are involved, it gets even more deeply emotional because the moms are working so hard to protect their children from the emotional and sometimes physical cruelty that they were subjected to during their partnership with uh, their co-parent. Yeah. So for those that did not watch the episode before, go in briefly and tell us what a custody coach is. 
Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, there's divorce coaches, there's custody coaches. Divorce coaches will cover your divorce um, and custody, and custody coaches will just cover custody. Um, so what I really do is I'm the liaison between you and your lawyer if you have one. Um, I don't take the place of your lawyer, but when I when I have a mom who comes to me, they've got a lawyer who maybe they like, maybe they don't like them, right? Maybe they're sure about them, maybe they're not. But what they know is no matter how good they think their lawyer is, they really feel at a loss and they're completely disempowered as to what to do in their case. So they'll get instructions from their lawyer, but they won't really know what to do with it, no matter how specific the lawyer is being. Um, and what often ends up happening is that even what a mom brings to the lawyer isn't as much as what what she thinks she has is not as much as what she really does have to bring to her case, to show that she's a healthier parent and to show her concerns about her co-parent. So tell us a little background of how you got started into doing this. Sure. Absolutely. I had a complex journey. <laughs> um, so I, I was a coach. Um, I ran a theater company and I was helping people doing uh, different kind of life coaching. And I had a theater company that was doing great, producing shows with um, famous playwrights were coming to see it. There was talks of it going off Broadway. Um, and then I met the man who would become my child's father. Um, we started as friends. He was soft-spoken, attentive, seemed to be on the exact same page as me about everything, right? But I had a gnawing sense that something wasn't quite right. And I ignored it because I'd been through a couple of other failed relationships. And I thought, well, you know what? It's me. I'm being picky. And he's got these quirks. That's what these things are. These are quirks. And I remember there was one pivotal point where my brother met him. My brother's a psychologist. And he said he was, he described um, my, uh, my co-parent as um, Certainly very doting was the way he said it. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I heard a criticism and it was only after everything fell apart that I realized it had been a warning. So I was with this man after I became pregnant, I was walking on eggshells, doing anything to please him to avoid his temper erupting again. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, I was somebody who had a business of my own. I had the theater company that was on the rise, but I was making myself small. And who he was in front of his friends in public was different from who he was behind closed doors. He was known in his community as a wonderful, iconic guy to look up to. But behind the scenes, he wouldn't help out at all with the pregnancy or once the baby was born. And then with the help of a friend and the DV hotline, I realized that I was being psychologically abused quite severely. And I left while he was at work one day. But I think... What I, what I wanna say that I think is so important, because I know a lot of moms say that they have a very similar story. What's most interesting about when I left was that it wasn't because he was cruel to me. It was because of the way he acted with the baby one day when he was livid. He was unsuccessfully trying to upload a video for an application for something and was also researching some odd thing that I'd asked about and he was livid that that research in that other page had magically caused his video to not upload. And it was all my fault, like everything usually was. So I asked him to hold the baby while I made myself some dinner. And he kept his 
furious eyes fixed on me as I ate, ignoring our five-month-old as he held him, keeping him in one frozen position and ignoring his cries of discomfort. And I'm trembling and I'm scared. I fixed a sparse dinner as quickly as I could, scooped up the baby and my food, went into the other room, put the baby to sleep and Googled how to leave an abusive man and I left the next day. So it, it took a mother protecting her child rather than a woman protecting herself mm. before I left that situation. So at that point, um, I became the founder of Best Foot Forward Custody Help because I had a divorce coach who turned my case around, saw the blueprint that I was creating for my own case and recommended that I become a coach myself which I wasn't ready for at that time because it was still in my case. And she has since asked me to teach for her program. But I'm a certified instructional designer, which means I can take any subject, work with any subject matter expert to teach and train others. And I realized that I was now a subject matter expert with court. And that's how, that's kind of how I got here, running a company that helps moms who are in custody battles against high conflict co-parents. In the past few years, I've, I've gotten further into working with court professionals to determine how, how foolproof the blueprint is and how the court landscape is actually finally changing due to COVID, but also as well how political movements are affecting it. You know, the father's rights movement and, um, you know, the 50-50 movement and that type of thing. So today, I guess I'm just here to offer your audience whatever can be helpful to them. Yeah. So let's talk about, so we're going through a child custody case. What are some of the things that moms should have in place when they go ready to go for custody? Um, sorry, I have to ask you to say that again, because my cats have decided to start eating very crunchy food. <laughs> what, what are some of the things that the moms should already have in place or should documents and things like that, that moms should do when they're going through custody cases? So I think one of the first things that a mom should do, hopefully before she leaves, but more often it's afterward, is to um, try to get copies of all kinds of statements, um, anything financial, because there's usually financial abuse as well. Um, so get copies of statements, get copies of particularly nasty text messages, um, get copies of save emails. So you you've got to have every one of the emails that they're sending you, they're usually blaming you for something or accusing you of something, but they're also showing how vitriolic and how cruel they can be and how nonsensical they can be. That kind of stuff can be useful in court. You can also do recordings. You, What you wanna do is you wanna go to Google and put in the name of your state. Let's say you're in Texas. So you would put in Texas recording laws. So put in your state and then recording laws. And what you're looking for here is, are you in a one-party consent state or a two-party consent mm. state? If you're in a one-party consent state, then you can um, secretly, stealthily, um, audio record any conversation that you are also a part of because you are the one party who is consenting to be recorded. If you're in a two-party consent state, then um, that's not possible for you because um, everyone in the conversation needs to consent to being recorded, right? Most states are one-party consent. So the best time for you to take recordings is during handoffs, which is usually when they're arguing or blaming or um, calling you names in front of the kids um, until their lawyer tells them to stop. 
um, at that point, then the best thing you can do is start recording your kids. Um, you know, the first, if you feel okay with it, you can record your kids. If you believe that they're, that, uh, the, um, father is trying to turn the kids against you, then mm. I would recommend that you record the first 45 minutes after your kids are back. Since statistically that's when they're most likely to share the things verbatim that their father has said to them that is either inappropriate or turning them against you, bad-mouthing you, disparaging you, okay? Those things are useful in court. Why are you looking for these types of things and what are you looking for? The court really wants to see parents who are collaborative. They're going to dub one of you the healthier parent only after they've determined that you're not both the problem, which is the first place they go. So the way for you to show yourself, to show yourself as the healthier parent then, is to show that you are treating your co-parent as if he's a normal person, as hard as it might be. I always tell my moms, swallow your vomit and be nice when you're emailing them. You know, you really want to have a certain way of emailing them so that you are showing, you're creating a different kind of evidence. You're showing that you're the healthier parent. You're showing that you are trying so hard to cooperate and collaborate with your co-parent. And then what you get back is usually not that way. After a while, they'll learn and they'll start to write better, but they're still going to be narcissists. There's still going to be some sort of cluster B personality disorder or at least high conflict. And um, that evidence is going to be there. Email chains are incredibly powerful um, evidence. The other types of evidence you're going to gather would be more specific to your case. If you're dealing with an alcoholic, um, a drug user, a steroid user, if you're dealing with someone who has a gambling addiction, any type of addiction or illness, um, they're not taking their meds, they've got a DUI, um, you're going to want to gather that evidence as well. Okay, any past evidence of police reports, uh, DUIs, as I said, any um, lost employment because of a drug or alcohol problem or any kind of a um, oppositional problem. Those are the things you're going to want to bring in. And then the other big thing, I mean, there's a long list. So I'm mm -hmm. sort of giving you a general idea. But the other big thing you're going to want to do is you're going to want to gather what's called collateral witnesses. A collateral witness is anyone who can speak to the way that either you parent or he parents your children, okay? So that's gonna be um, sitters. It's gonna be, sitters are great. It's gonna be teachers and coaches. It's gonna be professionals, like the play therapist, the talk therapist, um, the OT, the pediatrician, the nutritionist, you name it. Um, those people, if they have witnessed anything or if um, your children have said anything to them, then um, they can speak to that. They can also speak to things that they are declaring needs to happen for your child, which then is useful if they write a letter. If you have in opposition an email from your ex saying, don't you dare do that because I don't want you to do that. Mm. If you're curious for that or what you're feeding them, whether or not you want to vaccinate them, if the two of you don't agree on that, um, those are really big areas, especially right now with the COVID vaccine. But those are big areas where a doctor is saying one thing and the a disordered parent is saying something else entirely. No, last time you talked, you talked about don't use text messages as evidence. Go to emails. So speak yeah. to that. Yeah. So text messages can certainly provide evidence. However, um, that's a double-edged sword. 
Okay, there's two reasons that I don't like for people to talk to their co-parents via text. Um, the, the first reason is that it's hard for the courts to read. They don't know whether you're on the left side or the right side and which color you are, if you print it in color, all they see is this kind of stuff. And the other reason is because it looks emotional. You could be writing, um, you know, did you happen to pick up diapers? And they could write back, you know, it's not my responsibility to buy diapers. And the way that the court is going to read it, just by way of it being a text message, is did you go and pick up some diapers? And so there's just an automatic psychological tone that is added to text messages when they're read. An interesting thing is that what you can do that helps a little but not all the way is you can get a program or one of the new apps, or you can ask your service provider like Mint or AT&T or Verizon, T-Mobile, whoever, to um, give you, to send you a printout of all of the text messages that are on your uh, phone. That's going to help a little because it puts it in sort of a manuscript, like a transcript form. Um, but the other problem with that is there's still an emotional feel to it. It's still longer than it needs to be. And it also shows a volleying back and forth. And what does that make it look like? You're both the problem. Mm. You don't want that. You want to show that he's the problem. Um, and I think, you know, the other piece of it is for some reason, just, you know, email, just go back to email because that to them looks like you were trying to negotiate. Whereas what you've written on the phone, it looks like you're on the fly, just kind of reacting to something. Everything feels like a reaction to them. Um, so it's hard for them to follow and it looks emotional, so you don't get painted in a good light either. So let's talk about some of the cases that you have worked with, because last time you said you would come back on and just give us some examples of some of the cases that you've worked on. Sure, um, I'd like to talk talk about a, a few women who I've worked with because their cases, uh, it, they tend to be repeated. There's a lot, there's a common thread with these three cases I'll talk briefly about if we have time for them. Um, with a lot of moms. It's, you know, a lot, when I'm working with moms, I'm just working with the same stories again and again, because as I always say, narcissists believe they're so special, but they're all saying and doing the same things. Mm -hmm. um, it's just part of the disease, right? Part of the mental illness. So I wanna start out talking about Tanisha. Um, Tanisha's problem with her, with her ex is that she was writing long emails. Okay, so what was happening with her case was that it was almost a little bit like the text messages, except that you would have to scroll at least twice to read each of their emails back and forth, and she would respond in kind. Narcissists are very good at writing very long emails, and inside of these emails, he was blaming her for their relationship ending. He was blaming her for everything bad that happened in the relationship. He was blaming her for every tear that their children might have shed, no matter how natural it is for kids to cry. Um, he was calling her names um, and he was intimidating and threatening her to um, you know, give him more time. It was always about more time. Now, when Tanisha and her co-parent had been together, he couldn't be bothered with the kids. All right, like he didn't help out with anything. He would go into work early, he would come home late, and then he would sit in front of the television. He really didn't interact with them. But then as soon as uh, they split up, he wanted 50-50 custody. He wanted his half, right? Like the biblical baby, right? He wanted his half. And it didn't matter that he didn't have any iota of the kids' teachers' names or anything. And so 
throughout these emails, what he was doing was he was blaming her for the knowledge he didn't have. You're keeping them from me. You're keeping um, the teacher. I don't even know the teacher's names because of you. And it was completely nonsensical, but he was twisting it in a way where what he was saying could be valid. The thing about it is, is that they're gonna repeat the same accusations again and again. And that's what was happening with Tanisha. It was amounting to a lot of bad mom accusations, right? Mm -hmm. She's a bad mom. And it was a lot of crazy making and creating, she ended up creating evidence against herself. Mm. was responding to things. She was uh, being triggered. And so she was arguing back. Um, she was showing her frustrations. So then what's end up ending up happening here is that they both look like problem parents. And while he was the one doing some name calling, so he looked worse. Once the court saw that they were both a problem, uh, things didn't go well. In fact, he came in and was so charming in court into the guardian ad litem who is the child lawyer, might be called minor's counsel in some jurisdictions. Um, and he managed to get primary custody after she had, had primary custody. Mm. She ended up with one day a week visitation for two hours over video. Now, this woman was the only parent these children had ever known, right? These two girls, they hadn't, the father was never present when he was even there married. And now all of a sudden they've been ripped from their mother's arms. Literally, the younger one was literally ripped from her arms so that they could hand the children to this abusive man. Now I know, I can recognize NPD. Psychologists are very quick to say, well, we can't diagnose them because we haven't met with them. That's the right thing to say, all right? And I get it. But there's, there are some things that we can diagnose pretty quickly. You know, and the two things that they don't like to diagnose right away that are obvious are pedophilia and narcissistic personality disorder. And both of them happen to be pretty, um, pretty easy to diagnose. Right. But I get it. They're not allowed to completely say that. Absolutely. But this guy was a raging narcissist and he did charm the court. So what did we do? So when Tanisha went back to court, we saw that there were a few things she needed to do. One of them was she had, a, she had to choose a better professional monitor for her supervised visits, okay? Now, what was smart about this was that she did get a professional monitor. When you get supervised visits, if you're unlucky enough to be in a position where you get a supervised visit or your co-parent is getting supervised visits, you wanna do your best to avoid it being a friend or a relative. The reason for that is that a professional monitor will need to write a report when you next return back to court. And they can say, this mom's great with the kids, but the kids are saying that the dad's saying this, that, and the other thing. There's a very credible witness with that. But a lot of people don't get professional monitors because you have to pay them. Mm -hmm. And if you get a family member or a friend, then they're just doing it for you for whatever deal you put together with them. You cook them dinner, you buy them wine. They just want to help you out because they get it, right? Unfortunately, that's that's going to be one area where you do want to spend the money. Um, your ex is not likely to agree to it, so it'll be a battle. So that's something that we ask for through the court. So instead of emailing back and forth to decide who the monitor would be, we had her lawyer ask the court to make sure it was a professional monitor. Then he couldn't argue with it. Okay, so that was the first step. The second thing we did was we got her in good with her GAL. So. She wasn't sure how to 
talk with her GAL, um, the guardian ad litem. And so we started having her share her stories with the GAL. The biggest thing we did though, was we cleaned up the way that she was writing to her ex. So what we then were seeing was you'd have to scroll two or three times to see all the different ways that she was ruining the children's lives just as she had their relationship. And then you would scroll to her response, which would be about this long. Mm. And she started to look really good to the court, right? So now they've switched it to 50-50 and we have a plan in action for her to go back to 80-20. When I use these terms, 50-50 is by percentage. So um, someone is usually considered primary, primary, the primary custodial parent if they had 90-10, but usually 80-20, 70-30, even 65-45, anything like that, 35. So essentially, you just got to figure out what you want that to look like. Once you get to a point where you're 50-50, and this is our plan, then you know the kids are getting a little bit older. They're able to speak more, the older one, to the GAL. So the GAL is beginning to get a far clearer picture of what the reality is past the charm. Um, and he has made mistakes as well because of the way that she's doing things. Now, keep in mind, because she's cleaned up her act, his language has cleaned up a little bit too, but he's still a narcissist. And so he can't help blaming her and trying to twist things, even though the kids now have that professional monitor who are hearing a completely different story. He also wrote her an email at one point where he was accusing her of something he had heard through one of the daughters. And he created this whole big story, not realizing that this had actually all happened in front of the professional monitor when they visited her home. So the professional monitor wrote a report saying, this is not at all what happened. The daughter just went to her room to do this. I was there and that also helped. So that was Tanisha's story. So she got off of supervised visitation. She got to 50-50 and we have a plan for her to get back to 80-20. So how long are normally these custody cases last, you know, from like, like say for instance, Tanisha's particular one? So the average is two to three years. Everybody goes in thinking it's going to be under a year or maybe around a year, but the average is two to three years. It can go far longer. Um, I only have, um, the longest I have with one of my clients is she's been eight years. Another client has been six and a half years. So it just, and you know, they all say the same thing that they wish they had found me or at least some custody coach out there sooner to get things in order. But, um, the problem is, is that part of it is the way that you're strategizing your case. It can be advantageous to lengthen it for a while if you're trying to set a precedent. Um, an example might be um, if you've just left your ex and they're trying to determine what's going on. And right now you have a temporary order where you do have primary custody. You have the kids 80% of the time, which usually looks like every other weekend to your co-parent and maybe one night a week for a few hours for dinner and evening visit. Um, if you have that, then um, a lot of lawyers, and I believe this as well, believe that it's smart to try to push the court appearances further and further apart because the longer that the kids are in a situation, the more likely the court is going to say, we don't want to upset this situation. The problem is, is that a lot of moms are pushed to go 50-50 right at the start, either by a lawyer 
which frustrates me every time, or um, because they did it through mediation first in order to avoid court fees. Um, over and over again, I hear mom say, man, if I could go back, I would have just found the money to go to court because where we're at now is miserable and the kids are anxious. Um, their therapist is reporting all kinds of, they didn't even have a therapist before this. Um, you know, 50-50 with a disordered individual is not the way to go. It's just not. Um, so it can then last a while, either strategically or at a certain point, strategically, you'd only wanna do that for up to a year. After that, what I find with my moms is that things start to change because the other side, opposing counsel and your co-parent have caught on and they figured out a few things and learned a lot of things in that year, right? So um, after that, you gotta get it moving forward. That's that's what I've seen um, exemplified again and again is what I've, what I've seen is if you wanna do that strategically, you have to figure out where that turning point is and then go straight ahead. Once you know that you've got what you need to show the court who you're dealing with versus the person they see in court, then it gives them a fair shake to see what's what, right? Mm -hmm. And then you are leaving it up to the court then to decide. Now, if you go to trial, that's gonna last a lot longer. When I work with my moms, we do everything in our power to avoid trial because trial is incredibly expensive. It is unbelievably expensive. It can be, and usually is tens of thousands of dollars more. So what we do is I work with them to get a settlement but it has to be, we use, and we use a very particular template because what narcissists will do is they will find loopholes in all of the boilerplate templates mm -hmm. that you're downloading off the internet or that your lawyer is giving you. All of those things that they're used to using with warring parents, they don't work with a narcissist. So they will find every ambiguity and they will make your life you know, H-E double hockey sticks for a long time to come because that agreement has given them enough latitude to do so, right? Mm -hmm. So what you want then when you go in is you want to have a very, very tight settlement agreement. The terms are really tight um, so that you can still adhere to it and be comfortable, but tight enough so that you're not dealing with a lot of the arguments that you're having about time sharing, about taxes, about decision making, right? Those are the biggest three things really that come up interestingly enough. But I think last last time we talked, you were talking about, you know, making sure that you had the dates down for what constitutes a week. That's right. They can stretch right. them out. It does. It has to be that specific. I remember I told you because I've seen a case where a parent was like, no, a week is, uh, I think he said 12 days, either 11 or 12 days because um, the wording was it was a week for um, a break, a school break. And of course, the, what he wanted was from the time they were dismissed from school to the time they go back to school, which is usually around 11 or 12 days. Um, and that was how he defined a week from there on going forward. Mm. So you have to actually say um, the agreement, the template that I give my moms basically says um, what you're doing here is you're saying from day one with a five o'clock pickup or a school dismissal to day seven or day eight or whatever you've got going on, day six, whatever it might be, for a 5 p.m. drop-off, a 10 a.m. drop-off, whatever. So you've got you've got it put down. You don't want to say from Friday through Monday because then if anything changes, you want day one. You want it to be so that no arguments are going to come up because guess what? We've now hit something that doesn't fit this agreement and you can't work with this guy to say, well, 
then in good faith, what we're saying in this agreement is this, because they're going to come back and they're going to say, no, no, no. It says this day through this day, and that's what I'm going to have. You have to spell it out to a point of ridiculousness, and then you find peace. Have you ever had a case where the the other person also got a custody coach as well? Also got a custody coach? Yeah. It's funny you should say that because just this morning I was emailing one of my moms and I said, no, this is, I, I told her, I said, he's, he is way many more steps ahead of most narcissists and the way he's writing, I believe that he has a coach because he might have a particularly astute lawyer, but like I said, even the best lawyers who are so good at what they do, that doesn't mean that they're skilled at NPD. And uh, the way that these emails were coming across, I was all like, we've got our work cut out here for us because I kind of wonder if he has a coach. I mean, there's no way to know really without asking because people don't usually say, I have a career coach. I have a, they might tell their best friends, but people don't go around advertising. They have a divorce coach, a custody coach, a career coach, a life coach, right? Mm -hmm. So there's really no way to tell except that it's, it's probably, but it is, I'll say this, it's probably the first time I've seen it where I was all kind of like, I swear to God, I'm dealing with another coach. <laughs> See, because I was wondering once they caught on to that's why all these women are getting custody now or the majority or the primary custody of all their kids. Maybe these lawyers that are working, have you ever come across any the same lawyers? In court you know is, well, I've come across the same GAL, you know, it always, I'm across the whole United States and Canada, Australia and UK. So I would think it would be rare, but I came across two people in uh, the state of Illinois who has the same GAL. So I'm working with them. So that's interesting. Um, I, I don't, I don't often come across the same people because of how wide my net is mm -hmm. cast and because the family court, is there, there's no state, there's, there's so far, I haven't found anybody where I can say, I don't really understand what's going in your court system, so I don't feel comfortable about it. Because they're all telling the same, this is what happened in court, this is what happened, this is how this judge seems to be feeling, this is what this judge said about that, this is what the GAL said, the evaluator. It's all the same system. And I mean, they're all going, I mean, there's the conferences, it's the same thing, it's a profession. And so the way it works is um, most similar, probably across Canada and the US, Canada has some really interesting differences that I wish we had, but um, here in the U.S., but um, it really is, it, it always boils down to this. If you are up against a cluster B personality disordered parent, then evidence is pretty much the only way you're going to be able to show the court that that wonderfully charming man that they're staring at while you're being neurotic because you're still in recovery, you're still in PTSD, you're very anxious, and he knows how to trigger you that it's not that you are incapable of being a great mom. It's that he's great at impression management, you know? And so it comes down to the three things that are the tenet of what I do, which is strategy, mindset, and evidence. Hmm. You just mentioned something about Canada having different things that you wish the U.S. had in place. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, they're very good about, um, but there's a couple of um, the provinces that are changing a little bit on this, but they're very good about um, seeing that whoever has acted as the primary um, parent, the primary caregiver, um, should continue doing so. So they're very good at investigating what life was like before the separation. Mm -hmm. um, so our court seemed to be uh, more into 
They still say it's the best interest of the children, but then the language, that's what the language says on each jurisdiction's, on most jurisdictions website, right? And then they'll define what the best interest of the children is. And it's pretty similar across the board, which is to say, you know, what serves the children best and the best situation and their basic needs. And um, if the other parent has some sort of problems we should be aware of, but then they make it hell on earth for you to prove those problems that they said they were going to protect the kids from because they're so eager. The verbal language they then use in the court room in reality is that they want to get both parents as much time with the kids as possible. And they seem to be ignorant to looking at what were the kids' situations before? If the father was the primary caregiver and the mom was barely around and didn't care that much, then the father should be the primary caregiver. Mm -hmm. um, but here in the United States, the not all the time, of course, of course there are exceptions, but the vast majority of the time it's the mom. And I wanna say, um, because I've been seeing this on the boards a lot lately, um, including one of my own moms on one of my own boards came and said, you know, I know it's usually 50-50 and that's the default. It is not the default. Um, statistically speaking, we are still very much in 80-20. They wanna see who the primary caregiver is. If anything, that can create a problem with the narcissist because if they're charming enough and you're just, you know, still, you know, so upset enough mm -hmm. and you're coming into court being either bombastic or upset too much, then, they get the 80% and you get the 20%, right? So mm -hmm. 50, are there some jurisdictions that are really, they really want to go for that 50-50 because of father's rights groups or the judge's beliefs or anything like that or something political? Sure. But I think that if you look at studies, studies support an 80-20 uh, split. There's a, lot, there's, a, there's a great paper out um, the name of the woman who gathered it uh, uh, escapes me at the moment, so I apologize. I look at it all the time. So, but she, what she did was she gathered all of the 50-50 studies, and she said, "Look, see, 50-50 is better." And she made it seem like this was fact by bringing together um, quite a few studies that said that. But if you really look at all the pages and you read it carefully, there's one line where she says, "Except where there is." a high conflict situation when there's contention between the parents. That's exactly what we have here. And the courts are the last place that should be ordering 50-50 because you don't go to court unless there's conflict. 91% of custody arrangements are determined without the help of the court because the parents sat down and they figured out, you know what, We're, we can figure this out. And if they can't, then they say, we're kind of disagreeing on things. I'm sick of talking to you. In fact, I think I hate you. Let's get our lawyers to help us, mm -hmm. right? And then there's the people where there's just no talking to them. That's the, that 9% left over, 9% is who goes to court. And so the court is the last place that should be considering 50-50 because it doesn't work when there's um, contentious relationships. And there are a lot of lawyers who now see 50-50 who are saying, it doesn't even work when the parents do get along. It works best when the parents are teens and the kids do get along, and that's about it. That's not a high percentage. So the fact that I can go on the boards and see everybody say, well, it's gonna be 50-50, how do I fight this? Kind of like, it's, it's not though. What you're doing is you're fighting for who should get the 80%. Is that you or is that not? And when I talk to moms, I, I don't, I don't work with all of them. There are some mm -hmm. where I'm all kind of like, I'm not entirely convinced that it's not you who are the problem, but the vast majority of the time, what we're seeing, I mean, statistically speaking, narcissistic cruelty is heaped on women. Mm. 
So how did they get the courage to leave? Because honestly, you said that it took that one time for your um, son's father to be mean to your son and you really left. That's right. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'd like to think I was on the cusp of leaving because I just really realized how deep the problem was and how miserable I was. And certainly I'd been considering it. But to up and just do it, I mean, he held our son on his knee and just glared at me, wouldn't stop looking at me while our son started to cry. And my heart was just, and I was all, and then it was just like, I'm done. I'm done. And the next day he was at work and I went. So how did these women find the way, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it is a different breaking point for everyone. And I have even, it's, it's not often, but I get moms where um, the narcissist left them. And it's pretty much almost always for another woman. Mm. Um, and so when they've left, the story that they always tell is that not, excuse me, I shouldn't say always, most of the time the women are telling a story of when the psychological cruelty turned into physical violence against them first, um, which interestingly enough makes it more difficult because uh, another ridiculous thing that the courts believe, but you can tell what I'm passionate about, but another ridiculous thing that the courts tend to believe is that if a man beats a woman, he won't beat his children. What? Yeah. It's all over and over again. I hear, well, I understand that your relationship was that way, but you can see how he is with his children. You can see how much he wants to be with his children. This is not something he would do with children. Clearly this was a relationship thing. In spite of the fact that any credible psychologist that you would get on the stand would say, anybody who is able to be violent to another human being is not gonna pick which human being, they're gonna pick whoever defies them. And if you think a child is not gonna defy their parents at any given point, well, you're not a parent, right? Exactly. So it's, um, it, it drives me absolutely nuts. But this is when, this is usually when moms leave is when it's turned into something violent. And it could be something where they threw something across the room or at their heads. Um, but a frequent story that I hear that always just grabs me at my throat is when they say that they left after their, um, after their ex took them by the throat and threw them against the wall. For some reason, that is a frequent story that I hear. So for those of you who are cringing as you hear this right now, um, just know that that's, that's the breaking point for a lot of moms, that's when they take the kids and they go. Um, and you have to understand that a lot of moms that I talk to, please forgive me, um, it can be hard. Um, yeah. a, a lot of the moms that I talk to, um, it's hard for them to leave with the kids because they're like, where am I gonna go? It's the same thing you hear with you know battered women's shelters, which moms think they're never gonna end up going to, right? Um, I was lucky because I had enough money or I was making enough money. I'd had a lot of money and savings until I met him. And then he drained my account, which is also a common story. But I was making enough money that I was able to find some friends to stay with and then an Airbnb, a cheap Airbnb for a while um, before I was able to get back on my feet. There are a lot of moms I talked to who had no access it's the same story that you hear for battered women's shelters and you think, well, certainly I haven't sunk that low, but it's actually a common story, no matter what, whether you're, um, you know, blue collar, white collar, it's a common story where he has all of the money, 
Um, he's restricted the money or over and over again, I hear that he drained the account the minute that they left or a few days before because they felt something was in the air or whatever it might be. Wow. I just, I can't even imagine being a mom having to go through that and then making the choice of whether or not your kid will get fed or have clothes to actually be able to live. I mean, yeah. honestly, they're put, that's a rock in a hard place for them. It is. It very much is. And it's, you know, the, the other piece that, you know, when moms find me, I haven't had the moms that I work with. Um, I haven't had any of them, the people who are in my community, I've heard this, but for the moms I work with, none of them are the ones that have said, you know, he said he would chase me down and um, kill me, um, that he would find me, you know, um, you know, I had one mom who talked to me about that. Um, we didn't end up working together. So it's hard for me to speak to what happens in court after that just yet. Um, I know that if you can get, I already know from my community that if you can get that in writing in any way, text message is fine on that, then that goes a very long way in court. But that is not something that a narcissist often writes down in any way, form or manner. That's something they say. So. So maybe that's when the secret recording comes in. If you're in a one party consent recording. That's right. That's right. That is absolutely where you should be recording. Honestly, if you're, let me tell you this, if you're in a place right now where you don't know you want to leave, or maybe <clears throat> you don't know if you should leave or because of the kids, you don't want to break up the family, your religious upbringing, your family beliefs, all those things that play into it. Um, if you're thinking about leaving, start recording those conversations. And also um, they are catching on and they will record you when you start fighting for yourself. And they will only start when you start yelling and acting crazy mm -hmm. and they'll click stop as soon as you stop acting that way. And I've seen that turn against women hardcore in court. It is really hard to overcome them seeing that type of thing. So on your side, it's powerful if you can capture the way he is with you um, on his side it's very powerful if he captures you being hysterical in any way. So if, if you believe that there's cameras on you, if you believe you're being monitored, if he's the type of person who has to have cameras in his home because he's paranoid, that happens a lot with narcissists. Mm -hmm. um, or if he's straight up over and over again, they'll just pick up the phone and they'll say, they'll just start recording you. And the moms are so out of control and so triggered and so hurting and finally getting their voice that they'll keep rolling. It, it fares very badly for you in court. So the minute you think you're being recorded or the minute they pull out a phone, you got to shut it down no matter what's going on. It's hard, but you got to shut it down. Yeah. So how, how can moms get a skill to do that, to shut it down? Because you know, your emotions are heightened. They are. Um, so what I do with my moms is we work on, um, you know, as hoodoo voodoo as it sounds, um, we actually develop a personal mantra for each mom um, as soon as we possibly can. And it makes the hugest difference in court. And it, it, it and mental state is one of the things, one of the biggest. So it's strategy, evidence and um, mental state. Right. So your mindset is by and large, what has turned around a lot of things for the moms I work with, along with evidence. Um, part of mindset and part of what I teach is that you develop a mantra. Now, a lot of people think of mantras um, as being similar to affirmations, mm -hmm. but they're actually 
different. Um, an affirmation is, you know, talking, you know, you're telling yourself, I can do this. Um, I am good enough to do this. I can handle this. And those things can be incredibly useful. With a mantra, what you're doing is you're actually, um, you're stating something that you simply want, right? So my mantra was, I am a fit and healthy mom, because he was accusing me of mental health problems. Um, I said, I am a, which they often do. I'm sure a lot of moms out there are like, yep, that's what's going on because all of my moms have that too. That's a common uh, accusation. I said, I'm a fit and healthy mom who has primary custody of my child. And that was it. That was absolutely it. Now, some of the mantras then that I've worked with um, my moms are, um, I will have full custody of my children if I'm always appearing to be the mom the courts want to see. Now, the argument for this kind of mantra, for anything where you're saying, what do I need to remind myself? Mm -hmm. And instead of reminding it of myself, I'm just going to own it and say, no, no, this is my reality. Um, you know, what is in that? How can I possibly say that? And doesn't that sound insane? But what you're basically doing is you're, usual, you're using visualization to help yourself actualize something. Um, it's, it's got law of attraction all over it. Absolutely. But with that kind of mantra, if you think, instead of thinking about, boy, if I do this, I'm in trouble and this is going to mess up my case, that's got sort of an if-then feel to it. Instead, use a mantra to make it a reality, right? The other thing is that works for some moms as well, is when I say shut it down, I mean, you have to simply walk away and slam the door in the bathroom is usually where moms choose. And you can be as hysterical as you want in there in terms of crying, but you can't be yelling. You can't be doing anything that can be recorded. If he records you crying and you, what's that going to do for him? Nothing. Right. Yeah. So if he's recording you, you just have to turn around and leave. You have to remind yourself of your mantra so that you shut it down and that's it. What you can say to them is quite simple, which is to say, I'm not going to discuss this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. Whatever fits the situation you're in. It sounds impossible, but you have to get yourself there before you get there. So if you've got somebody who you're arguing with, if you've got somebody who is coming at you a lot, then this is something you have to actually practice before you're in that situation. And then it works. Okay. So you're either going to shut it down, turn around, go to the bathroom, wherever you need to go, your room, whatever it might be, and say, I'm not going to discuss this anymore. I'm not going to talk to you anymore, whatever it might be, you know, or you pull out that mantra and just let it be. Wow. And that's such a hard, so have you had cases where moms actually have used that mantra and actually been able to shut it down? Yes. Wow. Cause that's gotta be really, that's gotta be a really, really hard thing to do. Cause it's almost like another mind game for them as well, you know, but it's this, this time it's their mind game though. It is. And what's funny is that it's, um, you know, my mom's, my clients, so they'll email me when they've had a success and I always get a success and it's always like, I always get things like I'm shaking right now, but I did it or <laughs> it's, or I'm, I'm driving away my car and I just wanted to say this. And it's always like right after it happened that they want to come to me and they, want to say, I did it, you know, and some of them will say, you know, it came out angrily, but it came out and I stopped talking, you know, and it's, um, it's, it's great. I mean, they, it's funny when they uh, talk about the fact that they're surprised that it worked, but it has to do with 
um, it's like a, it's a self-empowerment really mm -hmm. is what it is. Is it saying I can get control of the situation? And so when we work on the mindset um, in my program, we're working on a whole bunch of things that lend itself to it. But that's, that's a quick tip that um, I give them. You know, there's little tricks that we use um, to just get control of our bodies because our bodies betray us. And when our bodies and our voices betray us, it can hurt us in court if they're smart enough to capture it, right? So you have to approach it from a lot of different ways, but that's one of the quick tips that we work on. And another thing I want to address is like when you actually are in court, you shouldn't talk unless you're addressed by the court, right? You shouldn't just jump up and just scream oh out. God. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, like when you're in court, and that's less of a problem. It can happen, but I always, um, so what we do is to deal with the problem that you're talking about where moms are basically kind of like, I've got to say this, my lawyer's messing up. Um, we have a system that we use. And what the system is, is that what you want to do is you want to take, um, you want to look at what you think is going to come up in that hearing because often you'll go into that hearing and everybody, your lawyer will say, this is what we're going to do in this hearing. This is what we're going to do with this court appearance. And that's what you plan for. Do not plan for that plan for that plus some and the mm -hmm. plus some that you're planning for are allegations that he has against you and what you think he's going to ask for right then and there. Because I think I mentioned last time, these court you're in court for 10 minutes and an entire visitation schedule can be decided that you never expected in 10 minutes. It happens all the time, right? Visitation can change hands. He can get overnights for a baby that is breastfeeding and he's never changed a diaper. It's insane what can happen mm -hmm. because they know to ask it in court because you're not prepared because the two lawyers discussed you were going to talk about something else. So here's what you do. Go through your emails, your text messages, everything that um, they've written to you. If you need help because it's triggering, get it. Get a friend, you know, get a coach, get a, a friend of mine uses um, a bishop, uses her bishop to actually look through these things and find where they're starting to accuse you some, of something or allege something about you. All right, so put that on one list. They're starting to say that I had postpartum depression, which they all like to say, mm -hmm. um, even though their psychologists will say that's not true. Um, that you know, they'll come back, they'll say she dropped him off late five times. It's kind of like, nope, I've kept a record of my visitation log. All the allegations. The other thing you want to do is if there's anything at stake that's huge that you know you're fighting about, time sharing, um, decision making whether or not to get that play therapist, which school they should go to, whatever is pending right now that you're going back and forth on, put that on the list as well, all right? Then what you wanna do is you wanna make a single page for each allegation and a single page for each big issue that might come up. And then you're gonna have three to five bullet points. That's it in 14 point or 16 point font that you will then go ahead and hand off to your lawyer should it come up in court. So what does that look like? If there's an allegation that you had PPD, then you would write, um, you know, accusation of PPD. And then you would have three to five bullet points really big. And you would have maybe three to five words then for each bullet point. Do not write a paragraph. This is what I have to work so hard with my moms with because they're like, I don't know how to condense this. The purpose here is that when you slip it to your lawyer, 
your lawyer is basically going to do this. They're going to look down and then they're going to look up and they're going to spew it out because you've just mm -hmm. given them your defense. If it's a paragraph, what do you think they're going to do? They can't read that. And that's also mm -hmm. why it's so big. It's 14 to 16 pages so that they font so point font so they can look down, grab it and go. All right. So you're going to do that for each one. And as soon as it comes up with opposing counsel, you're just going to flip through, you're going to pull that out and you're going to give it to them. They should have a copy of each of these things ahead of time, but you've got to have your own copy as well because you don't want them rifling through things when you've got it nicely laid out and tape flagged. Same thing with the big issues. If he wants, um, if he wants the baby, if he wants overnights with the baby now, then your three to five bullet points are baby is still solely breastfeeding. Um, you know, he has, um, Three times after a four-hour visit, the baby has come home with a diaper rash, which they've never had before. You know, you basically want to put down all the points that would be relevant mm -hmm. to the court, work with your lawyer or your coach to determine what would be relevant to the court or a friend who has been through this with a narcissist, all right, so that you can determine what those things are. Lawyers love these things. The, lawyer, the moms I work with, their lawyers ask for them now with every court appearance because that's partnership with your lawyer. And that's what's going to help you win is that you're partnering with your lawyer versus just sitting there and kind of doing whatever your lawyer tells you to do. And you cannot speak up in court. Okay. The other thing I just want to say about that is that when you are asked to speak in court, when you are directly asked a question on the rare occasion, then first off, you're going to want to say your honor. So say that, right. And then you're going to want to answer as succinctly, but also as thoroughly as you can. You want to do it clearly and you don't want to go into storytelling. You just want to state facts and they should, you should try to make them facts that you have evidence for. It's not like I'm saying you're suddenly going to pull up the evidence and say, look at what I've got judge. It's more that what you're going to do is you're going to state things. And then if she, if the judge says to you, she says, um, you know, Oh, do you have evidence of that? You can say, yes, I can judge. If you give me a minute, I can, pull that out. Yeah. Um, and if you are bringing evidence to court, by the way, please make sure you have four copies brought with you. One is for your judge. One is for you, you and your lawyer. And one is for opposing counsel. And the fourth one is if your GAL, if your guardian ad litem or minors counsel is in the courtroom with you, because whenever you submit evidence, everybody has to have a copy of it. And if you're doing it on the flash in court, because they don't mind that you're not getting it through discovery, then you're going to want to have copies for everyone. So plan for that when you go to court and make those templates for yourself. Wow. You have given us such, so many great tips. I mean, I can't even imagine what your daily life must be because you saw you were getting emotional with some of the, the cases that you were talking about. So yeah, the physical, I compartmentalize, <laughs> but, um, but sometimes the physical stuff is, is hard, even though I didn't, I left only when things started getting slammed around. And then, like I said, what, um, the way he was with the baby, um, you know, later on in hindsight, when I looked at the cycle of abuse and the way it starts out emotional, I realized that I got out, um, quite possibly, quite probably before it turned to, um, grabbing and then pushing and then hitting and then, you know, the cycle. So, wow. Is there any one last tidbit that you want to leave us with? Um, yeah, I want to say that um, when you write your emails to them, the, the way, remember I said it's these long, you're scrolling through their diatribes. 
um, and then your answer is succinct. It, I liken it to the Indiana Jones, um, where the guy is coming through doing all of his whipping and martial arts stuff, and then Indiana Jones just pulls out his gun. And um, the way that you do that is doing, um, you know, BFF, brief, friendly, brief, factual, and friendly. And so that should be about two to three sentences. Every email you give back to them should be on only one topic. If he starts to write about five different topics, don't respond to those five different topics. Just respond to the questions that are being asked, the time sharing that you need to do, and that is it. Make sure it's two to three sentences and that those two to three sentences are brief, they're factual, but also that they're friendly. Treat them like they are a coworker who, you know, you're both on the same project, you wanna be the one promoted, not, not your coworker. So you just kind of want to treat them politely as if somebody else is looking at that email because chances are good that they might. Mm -hmm. That also puts a stop to the madness of the way that they write to you. They're going to come back and they're going to taunt you and say, aren't you going to answer all this other stuff? And which at that point you're done because you've answered the questions that were posed. And so you will not look bad in court with the friendly piece, not just the co act treating them like it's mm -hmm. a business and they're a coworker. I always say that if you initiate an email to your ex, add what I call something lovely. And what I mean is, you know, hope you and the kids had a great time at the park. Annie said you were at the park. Hope you guys had a great time. Something I, I joke to my moms, you might have to swallow your vomit to do it because of how mean they are to you. Mm -hmm. But this is the kind of stuff the court wants to see. And a lot of times moms will say, I know I have to be brief. I know I have to be friendly. I'm okay, but if you're initiating an email, add that little lovely something. If you're just responding or it's starting to be a thread, abandon that. But when you first speak to them, show that when you initiate something with your co-parent, that you're treating them like you really are trying to co-parent. And if you need somebody's help, a friend's help or something like that to determine what that might, what you could possibly say, do that because it will go a long way with the GAL and with the evaluator. Okay, so now where can people find you at? So um, a quick way to find me is custodycorner.com. We'll take you to my website, which is um, Best Foot Forward. Um, the website is uh, bestfootforwardllc.com, but custodycorner.com will get you there. You can find Best Foot Forward on um, Facebook, which is where I'm most active. You can find us on Instagram. Um, you can also find us on Pinterest if you're kind of feeling like you just need some inspirational quotes to get through your um, custody case, which sometimes um, if you've had a dark day, um, you need that because I always tell moms when they're surprised that they lost a court hearing, I always say there are a lot of battles. What we're trying to do is win the war. This is a marathon here. And sometimes you have to lose in order to win. We just have to control what we lose. So. Renee, I want to thank you again for coming back on and talking about this more in depth, because I think that's everything a lot of women are facing right now is custody um, of their kids. Who's going to get them? So thank you so much for of coming. Course. On. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me back. All right, guys, we will see you on the next chat from the blog cabin. Bye. Wow, guys, I really enjoyed this once again having Renee on. And I told her at the end after we got off, she is welcome to come back on anytime. If there's certain case laws or anything like that, she's welcome to come back on. 
because she is such a wealth of information. I know there's a lot of you that listen that are either single moms or going through a divorce at the moment, and it's really hard to try to figure out and try to accept the emotions aside because divorce can be very emotional, especially when you have kids involved. So I was really thankful that Renee came back on and shared with some of the things that she does with her clients to help to gain the 80-20 custody. Uh, It's episode 102. If you want to go back and listen to um, Renee speak um, the first part of the episode, the first part of our interview, and then the second when she came back on is this, of course, this episode. But I think it'll give you a little bit more background um, on why I wanted her back on, especially during Women's History Month, because divorce and custody is something that a lot of women definitely face and it's a woman's issue and it's spoken by a woman who's actually gone through this herself so I really hope you really enjoyed I say hope a lot have you noticed that (laughs) you enjoy this episode and if you like the content I'm giving out please like review leave a rating subscribe anything that'll help me out Um, I am so thankful right now with this women's series it has just been boosted i wish i could do a content like this every single solitary day but unfortunately i can't maybe during um hispanic month which is another um month that's very near and dear to my heart because my girls are are half mexican they're they're first generations mexican americans that they that i may do something like this again for in september not quite sure yet who knows we'll see Um, but I really thank you so much for being part of the podcast family. I hope you have a blessed day and remember, keep chatting.